This is Double Truck Stories, the home for some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Justin Ellis. Aaron Rodgers' story reads something like a modern folktale. The overlooked quarterback who thrills college crowds only to see his stock plummet at the draft, finally landing at the Green Bay Packers, only to become Brett Favre's backup. Rodgers solidified his standings not just among Packers fans but across the NFL when he paid off years of hype and potential by winning Super Bowl XLV. But now Aaron Rodgers seems to be at the crossroads. If his story is a folktale, it's one that Rodgers himself has tried to meticulously craft, line by line. As the Packers have fallen short of another Super Bowl win in recent years, Rodgers' life off the field has slowly slipped into the realm of gossip, from his relationship with actress Olivia Munn to the disconnect with his own family. All of which to say is there's a lot on Aaron Rodgers' mind. In this week's episode, Aaron Rodgers pays a visit to Mina Kimes to talk about, well, everything. Religion, politics, Colin Kaepernick, the media, and more. As it turns out, Aaron Rodgers is looking for more in life than just another Super Bowl ring. Stick around after the story as Mina joins me to talk about what you do when a Super Bowl winning quarterback decides to come to your apartment. If you like Double Truck Stories, you can do us a favor and subscribe to the show wherever it is you listen to all of your favorite podcasts. And now, here's Searching for Aaron Rodgers, written and read by Mina Kimes. After the game, Aaron Rodgers got on the bus. It was unusually cold in Arlington during the week leading up to Super Bowl XLV. A winter storm had barreled into Texas, blanketing Cowboy Stadium with so much snow that slabs of ice cascaded from the roof. When the game against the Steelers ended, the team was showered with confetti. The players trudged down to the bus, where they sat for a while in the bowels of the stadium before heading back to their hotel. Someone brought the Vince Lombardi trophy on board, and the players passed it around like a collection plate, each taking a moment to palm the sterling silver. As his teammates chattered away, the quarterback sat and listened and thought about the plays he had made that night. Three touchdowns, zero interceptions, 304 yards. The bus rolled along, and he ran it all back in his mind, then pressed rewind and visualized his entire career, retracing the steps he had taken from Chico, California to Arlington, from beleaguered backup to Super Bowl MVP. As he reflected on the sacrifices and the slights, he wondered whether it was all worth it, and then he felt something unexpected. Not regret or fulfillment, but a different sensation, like a space had opened inside of him. He thought about life and football and everything he had invested in his sport, and a jarring realization sprang into his mind. I hope I don't just do this. It's an oppressively warm afternoon in Los Angeles, and I'm sitting in my living room looking at Rogers, looking at my stuff. The night before, his agent had sent me his phone number, suggesting that we meet at either his place or mine. A couple of hours later, Rogers texted me and told me he'd come here. So now he's sitting a few feet away from me on my sofa in a black t-shirt and jeans, Stan Smith's tapping on the floor, his arm, maybe the most valuable arm in the world, resting on a throw pillow. Typically, writers meet their subjects at a neutral location. Somewhere a publicist is chosen to reveal something about the celebrity, like his taste in food or hobbies or charitable work. Exposition by way of description. But Rogers wanted to meet here. When he sits down, he scans the room, his eyes flickering as he processes my books, my records, the dog toy I forgot to pick up before he arrived. He asks me whether I've read Under the Banner of Heaven, a story of violent faith, I haven't, and whether the fuzzy white figurine on my mantle is an alpaca, it's a llama, and whether the berries sitting in a bowl on my coffee table are fresh, 
I have no idea, but I say yes. As he studies his surroundings, it occurs to me that when I write about this, I'll have to describe my things instead of his things, and I realize that's probably why we're here. I set my phone on the table and press the record button. He pulls out his and does the same, so he won't be taken out of context, he explains. Rogers is unusually cautious. This is evident whenever he opens his mouth. Before he speaks, he pauses, choosing his words like a surgeon plucking instruments from a table. Some of this comes with the territory, all-galaxy quarterback, face of a multi-billion dollar insurance company, vessel for an entire state's hopes and dreams, but it rarely feels calculated. Rogers, 33, isn't studiously bland like many of his elite brethren, and he isn't evasive either. He's just cautious, wary of being misunderstood or revealing too much. Over the years, as his celebrity exploded, he closed certain windows, sequestering his private life while he charmed the public with his dry wit and quirky hobbies. He does crosswords. He likes Wes Anderson films. He showed us everything and nothing at all. And for a while, that was enough. But a few years ago, something shifted. As Rogers kept himself swaddled in bubble wrap, others started to pound away. Former teammates and anonymous sources who called him aloof. Bloggers who reported on every development in his relationship with actress Olivia Munn. His name, once the province of the sports pages, started to appear with greater regularity in the tabloids. And last summer, when his younger brother Jordan revealed on The Bachelorette that Aaron no longer had a relationship with his family, those stories took on a new life. Throughout all of it, Rogers said little. But the drumbeat of gossip and innuendo kept rising, and at some point he realized his voice was lost in the noise. So he's found himself here, on my sofa, popping probably not fresh berries into his mouth as the room fills with light. Over the course of a few hours, he talks about the windows he slammed shut and the ones he's cracked open, and I ask him why he feels compelled to let in any air at all. He cocks an eyebrow. Just a desire to be seen, he says. Just to be understood a little bit more. Roger's biography, now the stuff of NFL legend, is best summarized as a long list of slights. A scrawny kid becomes a talented high school quarterback but fails to attract any interest from Division I schools. After a year in junior college, he thrives at Cal and draws hype as a potential number one pick, then plummets in the 2005 draft, sweating it out in a pinstripe suit as millions watch. He lands in Green Bay, where he spends three years as Brett Favre's understudy and is greeted by booing fans when he finally becomes a starter. Throughout his youth... Rogers wore these indignities on his body like lashes, looking at the scars whenever he needed motivation. Then he won the Super Bowl. For years, Rogers seemed convinced that the world didn't believe in him. Then, in an instant, he produced irrefutable evidence that the world was wrong. The overlooked, undersized kid had made it to the mountaintop. But when the Packers bus left Cowboys Stadium on that chilly night six years ago, he didn't feel like he had risen to a higher plane. Rather, he realized he was still looking for something, for a sense of clarity or purpose that was beyond his current line of sight. It's natural to question some of the things that society defines as success, he says. When you achieve that, and there's not this rung, you know, another rung to climb up in this ladder, it's natural to be like, okay, now what? I ask him where this search has led him, half expecting him to reveal some second act. Instead, he says, he looked inward. I think in people's lives who grew up in some sort of organized religion, there really comes a time when you start to question things more, he says. It happens for some at an early age. Others, you know, maybe a little older. That happened to me six or seven years ago. 
Like so many players in the NFL, Rogers devoted much of his young life to those twin pillars of American culture, football and faith. As a boy growing up in Chico, he attended a non-denominational church with his parents, both devout Christians, and absorbed the religion's traditional tenets. And yet, even as he soaked up those lessons, there were aspects of dogma that left him dissatisfied. I remember asking a question as a young person about somebody in a remote rainforest, he tells me, because the words that I got were, if you don't confess your sins, then you're going to hell. And I said, what about the people who don't have a Bible readily accessible? For years, those concerns nagged at him, especially as he met more people from other walks of life, teammates who grew up in different parts of the world, friends with different religious backgrounds. He started reading books that delved into alternate interpretations of theology. Then, not long after he became the starter in Green Bay in 2008, he met Rob Bell, a young pastor from Michigan whom the Packers invited to speak to the team. When the talk ended, Rogers waited for the group to dissipate and then introduced himself to Bell, best known for his progressive views on Christianity. The two men struck up a friendship. Bell sent Rogers books on everything from religion to art theory to quantum physics, and the quarterback gave him feedback on his writing. Over time, as he read more, Rogers grew increasingly convinced that the beliefs he had internalized growing up were wrong, that spirituality could be far more inclusive and less literal than he had been taught. As an example, he points to Bell's research into the concept of hell. If you close read the language in the Bible, Rogers tells me, it's clear that the words are intended to evoke an analogy for man's separation from God. It wasn't a fiery pit idea. That concept was handed down in the 1700s by the Puritans and influenced Western culture, he says. The Bible opens with a poem, he adds. It's a beautiful work, but it was never meant to be interpreted as I think some churches do. I ask him whether he still sees himself as a Christian, and he says he no longer identifies with any affiliation. After Super Bowl 45, Rogers and Bell spent a lot of time talking about what he experienced on that bus, how he felt, or didn't feel, and his realization that absolute success in the field didn't make him completely content. It wasn't until he confronted his own narrow-minded views about the world and his place in it, he says, that he experienced a sense of fulfillment he yearned for. I think questions like that in your mind lead to really beautiful periods where you start to grow as a person, he says. I think organized religion can have a mind-debilitating effect because there is an exclusivity that can shut you out from being open to the world, to people, and energy, and love and acceptance. That wasn't really the way that I was maybe the first 25 or 26 years of my life, Rogers continues. I was, you know, more black and white. This is what I believe in. And then at some point, you realize... I don't really know the answers to these questions. Before Rogers comes to my house, he stops in a hipster cafe in my neighborhood. Think exposed bricks, single origin list, baristas with deliberately misshapen haircuts, and text to ask whether I want a cup of coffee. I tell him I'll just meet him there. When I open the door, I see him sitting in the middle of the store, surrounded by aspiring screenwriters glued to their laptops. All appear to be unaware or uninterested that a future Hall of Famer is in their midst. Rogers stands and no one looks up. He smiles. He's lived in Los Angeles for about three years. While he owns a house in San Diego, he spends pretty much all of his non-helmet-wearing time here. Rogers likes L.A. for the same reasons most transplants do. He grew up in a small town and was drafted by a football team in a small town. And aside from the one and a half years he spent at Cal, he'd never experienced life in a city before. He likes it all. The live music, the organic grocery stores, the expectation that he can walk around without being stalked by middle-aged men with Sharpies asking him to sign memorabilia they'll later sell on eBay. Angelinos are, for the most part, pretty chill, he says. They see a lot more famous and recognizable people than me every day. 
When I ask Rogers whether he dislikes fame, he pauses for a second. He's wary of complaining about his own celebrity, given the attendant benefits. But he admits there are some things that cause him discomfort. Decreased privacy, he says, and increased strain or pressure or stress associated with relationships, friendships and dating relationships. In 2014, Roger started dating Mun. He previously was engaged to a woman he knew from high school, which he's never publicly discussed. In April, it was reported that the couple had broken up. I asked him what he learned from the experience. When you're living out a relationship in the public eye, it's definitely, it's difficult, he says, jostling on the sofa and blinking a little as though I've just pointed a flashlight at his face. It has some extra constraints because you have some other opinions about your relationships, how it affects your work, and, you know, just some inappropriate connections. It seems clear that he's referring to the fans and pundits who asked whether his famous girlfriend might be hurting his performance, so I say as much. He nods, adding, They're such misogynists, right? Roger sees the media the way a person strapped to a spinning wheel might regard an amateur knife thrower. He's deeply concerned about his words being carved into fodder for the aforementioned pundits, used to drive news cycles beyond his control. There's some horrible media outlets that you say something or do something where there's a story and they just go with it and run with it, he says. Rogers tells me he's gotten better at ignoring his critics, but he admits it's still a struggle. Throughout our conversation, he repeatedly criticizes the media for overblowing storylines, including ESPN, which he refers to several times as your network. When somebody thinks of you a certain way that's not real or says something about you that's not true, I, you know, that's not me, he says. You're not seeing me the right way. Last summer, Rogers found himself in the center of a minor maelstrom when his brother Jordan, who's now a commentator on ESPN's SEC network, discussed their fractured relationship on TV. For fans who had followed the quarterback's career, the revelation came as a bit of a shock. In years past, his parents had featured prominently in stories about his wholesome upbringing, flanking their son in Arlington. But in January, the New York Times published an interview with his father, Ed, reiterating what Jordan had said. Jordan and Ed did not respond to requests for interviews. Afterward, Rogers told the Times he didn't think it was appropriate to comment on the story. I asked him whether he still feels that way. Yeah, I do. Why? Because a lot of people have family issues, he says. I'm not the only one who does. He tells me he doesn't see any upside in discussing those issues in public. It needs to be handled the right way. It bears mentioning that Rogers never pulled me aside to tell me off the record his side of the story about this or any other critique. His belief in the value of privacy is abiding. I think there should be a separation between your public life and your personal life, he says. I've always felt like there should be a time when you don't have to be on. And yet, in recent months, he's tried to open up a bit more. I do have a desire to be myself and not have to feel like I've got to be so private, he says. I think, because I live in a fishbowl, you either kind of internalize everything or you just relax and let life be. He mentions a couple of times that he recently joined Instagram. Imagine a famous person who was not on Instagram in 2017. He's uncomfortable with all of it, the selfies, the location tagging, the performance of being Aaron Rodgers, but he's doing it anyway because he's found that silence can be suffocating in its own way. Rodgers moved to Green Bay when he was 21. Since then, he has voted in every major election, presidential, local, even the 2012 failed vote to recall Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. When I tell him I was surprised by his level of civic participation, he shrugs it off. I'm a proud Wisconsin resident, so I feel like it's a duty of mine to vote in the Wisconsin elections, he says. Rogers tells me that he doesn't identify with any political party, but that he believes some issues shouldn't be partisan. Climate change, human rights, civil liberties. 
I ask him if he's wary of possibly having to decide whether to visit the Donald Trump-helmed White House this year. Several patriots made news when they skipped the NFL champion ceremony, and he grins. No, because that means we're in the Super Bowl, he adds. I don't shy away from those things. I think that you just have to think about what you say before you say it. But at the right time, you can say things that have a major impact. Consider a comment he made two seasons ago during a news conference after the Packers lost to the Lions. Before kickoff, the team held a moment of silence for the victims of a recent terrorist attack in Paris, and a fan shouted an anti-Islamic comment. When the game ended, Rogers told reporters that he was disappointed, adding, It's that kind of prejudicial ideology that puts us in the position we're in today as a world. Afterward, he received a letter from then-President Barack Obama, which is something I still have and means a lot to me, he says. A lot of times you'll go back, and even with this interview, I'll go back and say, maybe I should have said this. But in that moment, I said exactly what I wanted to say. Rogers has said he envies the NBA's culture, which enables athletes to speak more freely about social issues. The guys who are most vocal in the NBA are the best players, he says. When I point out that he obviously falls into that category for the NFL, he says he believes he can say what he wants, but that it has to feel authentic. He mentions that he's interested in taking on a role in the players' union. He used to be a players' rep, leveraging his unique position to strengthen their cause. I ask him why he thinks the NFL is more restrictive than the NBA, and he points to the structural differences between the sports, specifically the absence of guaranteed contracts in football. In the NFL, if you're on the street, you're not getting paid unless you have some sort of bonus that goes into another year. So there's less incentive to keep a guy, which gives you less job security. Less job security means you've got to play the game within the game a little tighter to the vest, he says. Part of it has a really good nature to it, being a good teammate, being a professional. The other part is not being a distraction. And I use distraction as more of a league term. We talk about his friend and former Cal teammate, recently retired Patriots and Chiefs lineman Ryan O'Callaghan, who came out as gay in June. In an interview on Outsports.com, O'Callaghan described how he feared coming out, even contemplating suicide for years. I'm incredibly proud of him, Rogers says. I know he had a lot of fear about it and how he would be accepted and how people would change around him. I think society is finally moving in the right direction as far as treating all people with respect and love and acceptance and appreciation. In the locker room, I think the sport is getting closer. He adds that players like O'Callaghan worry about retribution, not only from their teammates, but also from executives, again pointing to the absence of guaranteed contracts. There's a fear of job security, he says. If you have a differing opinion, differing sexual orientation, they can get rid of you. So is it better just to be quiet and not say anything and not risk getting cut with people saying, well, it's because you can't play? I bring up Colin Kaepernick. It's July and the media are still speculating as to why Kaepernick isn't on an NFL roster after kneeling during the national anthem last season to protest racial inequity in policing. The word blackballed is being used with greater frequency, though some people in and around the NFL maintain that the quarterback simply isn't very good. I ask Rogers what he thinks, and he demurs at first, then says it would be ignorant to suggest Kaepernick's stance didn't play a role in his employment status. A few weeks later, he reaffirms his point. I think he should be on a roster right now, he says. I think because of his protests, he's not. Rogers tells me that while he doesn't plan on sitting out the anthem, he believes the protests, which he describes as peaceful and respectful, are positive, mentioning this he had conversations with a new teammate, tight end Martellus Bennett, about the issues they represent. I'm going to stand because that's the way I feel about the flag. I'm going to stand because that's the way I feel about the flag. But I'm also 100% supportive of my teammates or any fellow players who are choosing not to, he says. They have a battle for racial equality. That's what they're trying to get a conversation started around. 
I ask him what he thinks about that battle, the actual subject of Kaepernick's protest. As always, he pauses to collect his thoughts. I think the best way I can say this is, I don't understand what it's like to be in that situation, what it is to be pulled over or profiled or any number of issues that have happened that Colin was referencing or any of my teammates have talked to me about. He adds he believes this area the country needs to remedy and improve and one he's striving to better understand. But I know it's a real thing my black teammates have to deal with. When Rogers explains how his worldview has evolved over the last six years, he says he's grown better at seeking out people with backgrounds different from his. He doesn't offer many examples, but Packers receiver Randall Cobb, one of Rogers' best friends in Green Bay, he was recently a groomsman in Cobb's wedding, describes the quarterback as a sponge in all matters, including social issues. As we've grown closer, I've been able to give him the perspective of a black man who grew up in the South and opened his eyes to the challenges in my life, Cobb says. He adds, football is one of the things we rarely talk about when we're outside the building. After we've been chatting for a couple of hours, Roger stands up and walks across the room, stretching his legs and leaning on the mantle next to my television. I think about how, a few months ago, I was sitting on my sofa, watching him on a screen that's now inches from his head. Roger's persona on the field adheres closely to his manner off it, calm to the point where he almost seems amused, but competitive as hell. There are legions of Michael Jordan-esque anecdotes about him gutting out hard-fought victories in everything from pickup basketball to cards. A.J. Hawk, his former teammate, tells me a story about being paired with Rodgers for a party game and watching the quarterback grow irritated with his lack of effort. He was trying to scold me and tell me I wasn't engaged, Hawk says, laughing. I was like, you're right, this game sucks. Rodgers doesn't dispute any of this. I've always wanted to be the best and hated losing, I think, more than I enjoyed winning, he says. He does object, however, to the stories that paint him not just as competitive, but also as incapable of letting slights fall to the wayside. I'm not the grudge holder I'm accused of being, he says. I don't have the stack of chips that I, you know, need to have on my shoulder all the time. Unprompted, Rogers mentions a 60-minute story from 2012 that focused on his responses to perceived slights, a piece he says left him frustrated, confused. So then that narrative kind of gets out there a little bit, he says. I point out that when he criticizes a show like 60 Minutes for making him look sensitive, it makes him look, well, yeah, he smiles. It's true, he admits, that he used to dwell on the indignities he faced in his youth, that he kept the rejection letters from Division I colleges, called out analysts who misjudged him, needled his coach, Mike McCarthy, about passing on him in the draft. McCarthy was San Francisco's offensive coordinator in 2005. It's all true. And yet, I just don't need it the same way I used to need it, he says. That was what fueled me, to wake up at 5 o'clock and work out before school and stay after and do extra sets and extra throwing. The root of that was to be great to prove a point every single day. I don't need to prove a point every single day anymore. Entering his 13th season, Rodgers must find new sources of motivation, catalysts that, more often than not, come from within. Take around the table. In November, the Packers were 4-6, and six, and it seemed like they'd missed the playoffs for the first time in eight years. On a Wednesday, Rodgers looked at the standings and realized the team would probably have to win out in order to make the postseason. So he stood in front of a gaggle of reporters and, in a moment that has since been memorialized in countless montages, said, I feel like we can run the table. I really do. And they did. Roger says he wasn't anxious about his prediction. I wanted that extra pressure on myself, he says. If anybody had any nerves or stress or pressure or doubt, just, you know, put it on me. I'm going to play better. And then in turn, if everybody else is less stressed and feels less pressure, they're probably going to play better, too. Over the course of those six games, he threw 15 touchdown passes and zero interceptions. 
It was arguably the most impressive stretch of his career, and the Packers made it to the playoffs, where they lost, somewhat brutally, to the Falcons in an NFC Championship game. Since 2011, Rodgers has been selected for five Pro Bowls, but the Packers have yet to return to the Super Bowl. His sole championship appearance has become a flashpoint for debate. Can one of the most talented quarterbacks to ever play the game be truly great if he wins only one ring? I ask Rodgers whether that possibility scares him. For once, he answers quickly, no. He adds, I mean, it would be disappointing, but no. I'd love to go back at least a few more times. But at some point, my career is going to be over, and I'm going to move on and do other things and be excited about that chapter in my life. At the moment, that next chapter is a work in progress. While Rogers has a number of business interests, he says he'd prefer not to name them because he wants them to stand on their own. He's also spent the last few years exploring fields that were foreign to him, picking the brains of experts like film producers, investors, and CEOs. He loves, like really, really loves, documentaries. One of his other passions is healthcare. After watching a former coach battle cancer, he grew interested in his treatment and wanted to explore new forms of therapy for the seriously ill, including better nutrition. As we discuss his various enthusiasms, it dawns on me that he hasn't brought up football, so I ask him whether he'll be done with sports when he retires. Sports will always be part of my life, but I don't have a desire to coach them or broadcast, he says. Throughout our conversation, Rogers mentions several times that he cherishes his work on the field. He has no plans to leave the game anytime soon. But the time he spent searching for meaning outside football has, paradoxically, made him cherish it more, he says, because I'm not obsessing over a ball. Later that day, after our interview, I think about what Rogers said about winning another Super Bowl and wonder whether he was telling the truth. It seems so unlikely that someone so fiercely competitive, so gifted, would tolerate anything less than a perfect ending, one that would immediately vault him into the greatest of all time conversation and silence any lingering debate. Then I think about his description of that long bus ride in Texas and what it must feel like when the world assumes you're preoccupied with one question while you're really wrestling with a different one. In February, when New England and Atlanta met in Super Bowl 51, Rogers watched the game in Los Angeles at Rob Bell's house. He sat on the sofa next to the pastor's eight-year-old daughter, the family's dog curled up at his feet. The Bells had a guest visiting from Northern Ireland, a philosopher who knew nothing about American football. Rogers tried to teach him how the sport worked. While the entire country was losing its collective mind over the game, the most talented quarterback in the world not playing football that night was literally explaining down, says Bell, who laughs as he remembers the scene. And in that moment, he says, his friend seemed truly happy. It had been six years since Rogers' trip to the Super Bowl, and Bell still remembers what his friend told him after he won. I've been to the bottom and been to the top, and peace will come from somewhere else. Welcome back. That was Searching for Aaron Rodgers by Mina Kimes. Mina's with us now. Thanks for being here, Mina. Thanks for having me. So uh, I'm guessing at this point, um, one of the biggest questions many people probably have after reading and hearing this story is, um, how how does somebody prepare to interview an NFL quarterback in their living room? I mean, how, how much cleaning is involved? Is it like a your friends are coming over for Game of Thrones cleaning, or is it more like a my parents are going to be here for a week situation? Like, 
Well, I was hoping he wasn't going to be here for a week. Although I guess that would have made a very interesting and different story. Um, it's a lot of shoving things into a room with a closed door and hoping he doesn't randomly stumble in there. I have a pretty small house, so it didn't take terribly long, but I only found out he was coming over the night before. So I had kind of a limited time to work with. Uh, and it wasn't just cleaning, Justin. It was also the, the purchasing of the snacks was a huge <laughs> event for me that morning. Um, it's just all very surreal. Uh, and you went with the berries, which were of indeterminate freshness, as as you point out. Um, <laughs> Keep asking me about that. <laughs> <laughs> so I think one of the things that's really interesting in this story is you, you go very meta in a lot of points, pointing out the fact that it's kind of unusual for for an interview subject to want to come over to your house. Um, for, for you, how did you have to sort of adjust to that in terms of uh, thinking about how you conduct the interview in terms of, uh, you know, how to put him at ease and things like that? Yeah, you know, it was his choice, which is part of the reason I ended up, a big reason actually, why it ended up becoming a big part of the story. Because, you know, if it was my choice, I don't think it would have reflected on him in any way. But at some point... As I was spending time with him and learning a little bit more about the way his brain works, uh, you know, it, it occurred to me that it was all very deliberate. You know, there was a reason we were at my house, and there are a number of reasons. Some of it was that he's extremely, extremely private, so private, you know, he doesn't want people in his space, and then he doesn't want to be in the public. So it was kind of a process of elimination for him, but also I think a little bit of him wanting to see to learn about me, to learn about my space, and not not to put me at unease or eased in any way, but just sort of to be a little bit repertorial himself, which I thought was interesting. Right, but at the same time, and, and I think the other thing that's kind of interesting yet terrifying is he also comes in and he puts down his own recorder. So at that point, <laughs> like, what what do you do? How do you, you know, what was your reaction when he did that? Yeah, rep, speaking of repertorial, right. Um, that's not happened to me in sports with an athlete and – um, you know, I knew I couldn't say no. And, it, you know, I was a little bit unnerved because I think it implies not a total lack of trust, but a bit of caution and I don't want to say cynicism because that's not right either. But, you know, he definitely wanted to have some control. That's probably the right way to put it in the right. situation. It was interesting, Justin, because I was very like disconcerted by it but everyone i told after i did the reporting especially non-journalists were like oh that seems like a good idea <laughs> and uh, that was kind of interesting you know like people were like oh maybe i would do that too and i was like man nobody does this and yeah. kind of raises the question of why i think that means that we're the we're the weirdos and the outsiders in this case so yeah. for for this story i mean as you point out many times as, as you've already discussed you know he's a very calculating guy when it comes to what he says uh how he approaches the media so how did this interview come together? I mean, how how did all of this start? Yeah. So I uh, the seed was planted in my head actually last year, a little bit before, I think it was maybe July, whenever I, I did a story on Michael and Martellus Bennett for the magazine oh, yeah. and Aaron and Martellus, who's now on his team, but he wasn't on his team at the time. He brought it up in a radio interview and mentioned that he liked it. And so that sort of idea was in my head like, oh, okay, like... Aaron Rodgers has read a thing I've written and um, <laughs> had positive feelings about it. Obviously, I told a lot of people, but um, <laughs> so then I was thinking about that. And then, you know, last season was so it was very tumultuous for him in a way because he struggled at the beginning and then he had that incredible run to finish it. But as that was going on, there was this tableau in the background of 
some critical stories, some anonymous sources. There was a lot of um, pieces about his family spurred by the Bachelorette and the fact that he didn't have a relationship with them anymore, the New York Times story. So I kind of thought, huh, like we haven't heard from this guy. So not only do I th- is there, I think, an appetite for that, but I also think he might have a desire to say something, if not about what these stories about, just to actually be heard in any capacity. So I contacted his people in, I want to say it was in the spring. Um, and then a few months later, he agreed. So it sounds like you had sort of an, an idea of, of, of this guy must have something on his mind. But I, I guess going into it, did you have an idea of what this story is? Because as, as we see it now, it's this idea of, of Aaron Rodgers trying to find something more, searching for something more. And I, I guess yeah. I'm wondering what was your idea of the story going in and then how did that change after, obviously, this interview? So I had no idea. You know, the story begins at um, – the Super Bowl he won, and it sort of presents that as this moment of a, a little bit of a change of course in his life. And I didn't know about that going into the reporting. I did know that um, he had been on an interesting journey with his faith. He did a great podcast with Pete Holmes, who is a uh, very funny comedian. Oh, did he do he uh, You Made It Weird? Podcast. Yes, oh, exactly. Nice. So that was last year. And I listened to that. He's really funny and interesting in it. And they talk a little bit about their faith and... Aaron, you know, kind of alludes to how much it's changed. So I thought that was an area that he might be interested in talking about and something that would be fruitful. Um, and so I was excited to go down that road with him. But, you know, a lot of the topics I brought into the conversation, I didn't know if he would be comfortable talking about um, the NFL culture or gay players or Colin Kaepernick or Anthem protests. I just kind of was you know, like this is a very smart, interesting, thoughtful person. And he's also occupies a very unique position in this sport, um, in the American imagination, to be honest. So I kind of want to hear what he says about all of this. And I was pleasantly surprised to see how willing he was to engage on so many issues. So for something like this, uh, walk us through how you, you, um, you sort of direct this interview, you know, the flow of this interview, because uh, like you said, there's so much in here in terms of him talking about his, his religious journey, uh, him talking yeah. about his family, him obviously, I mean, to me, one of the most interesting things is him talking about, you know, of course I, I voted in every election because I'm a Wisconsin <laughs> resident. How, how do you kind of direct that, that conversation, you know? Uh, well, that in particular, I was just like, I looked this up and it's crazy that you vote so much because I don't, I feel terrible, but I don't vote in every election. Uh, certainly not, you know, the recall election or whatever. And you can just look it up. Right. So I was just kind of curious and it was Rogers, 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 and it was him. And I was just kind of amused. And they were during football season too. I was like, you really go to the polls in November, you know, for an off year. Wow. Um, and he wasn't surprisingly unnerved by the fact that I knew that, but, um, you know, I uh, I think I, I as far as like the way the interview went, um, once I sort of recovered from the surreal nature of the situation, I remember that the first thing I talked to him about was um, living in L.A. because I had just moved to L.A. and he's been here for a few years, and I had a feeling that kind of played a little bit of a role in his life in some ways. I mean, how it's changed the kind of person he is because I knew he had grown up in Chico, which is not a big town and living in green Bay. And I sensed that there was something about 
being in a city that he really liked and that he was drawn to. And I, that's where we kind of started our conversation. So did you get any sense from this again, because this is a guy, you know, you have this one exchange where you say that it's not like this is a guy who's boring per se. You know, there are, there are NFL players who are boring. There are guys who are bland. It's just that he's, you know, he's, he's very calculated. Did you get the sense at all that this is just another sort of calculation for him, that this is something that he feels he needs to do or, or was this genuine? Well, I think definitely there's a purpose to him. And, and I've, you know, earlier when I said part of the reason I thought he might do the story was because he hasn't in a while, right? And other people have filled the void for him. So I, I was fully aware, you know, there's a bit of a logic to why he might talk right now. And I think this plays a role in a lot of why extremely famous people do profiles is... um it's, it, and that sounds very cynical, and I don't mean it that way because wouldn't anyone want to, right? If right. you, if, if all the stories about you over the last couple of years had been other people, sometimes critical people, you know, might you yearn for the opportunity to sort of, I don't want to say counter-program, but to throw your own voice into the mix? So I, I think that was definitely on top of his mind. I will add, we didn't talk at all about what we would chat about. His agent didn't ask me. He didn't ask me about where the interview would go. Yeah, Um yeah. And there was no discussion beforehand, which is something that does happen a lot, it by does, the way, yeah, because, you yeah. know, people want the opportunity to prepare or to say, no, I'm not going to talk about that. Nothing with him. So for all of his reasons for doing the story, he had very, you know, he didn't have control over where it went once we were together. Right, right. Well, one thing on, on the actual structure of the piece, you know, this is primarily just you and him. And I, I'm wondering if at any point you were like, well, does this make sense as just like a straightforward Q&A or, or how do you wrap in obviously some of the the contextual things in this you know i'm wondering about that you know it seems like there was two parts here it could have been just a straightforward conversation or doing something that's more more narrative here sometimes so often with profiles a big part of what makes them great is the opportunity to watch the subject interact with the world whether it's you know, I mentioned I just ran the Bennett brothers. A lot of that story was watching them interact with each other yeah. or like waiters and waiters, like just like random because they're such free radicals floating in space and they're so entertaining and funny and cool. And um, when it's just you and the subject, it's a little different. And I think it, I, I keep telling people in a way that I felt like this was a lot more like a celebrity profile than a traditional athlete profile in some ways, because mm-hmm. that's often the setup when it's an actor or an actress, right? It's just yeah. them and the writer. Yeah. And, you know, with us, we often have game situations and practice and this and that, but this was different. And so I thought that I had to really pay attention, not just to what he said, but when and how he said it, what he was willing to talk about, his little reactions to things, um, because I knew some of that would matter as much as his quotes. Right, right. Well, in the same in the same way, though, you're also a character in this, and that seems like that's also very similar to say, like a GQ profile, where the writer yeah. is sort of actively in it. Um, and I, I guess again, like, why do you do you think that was necessary, and was that weird at all to you? Yeah, I did not want to be a character in this, but um, <laughs> he came to my house. <laughs> I was kind of, you know, the second he said, "I'm coming to your place," I was like, "Oh, okay." Well. All right, then, you know, like this is the reader needs to know how exactly how this happened. And I didn't want to um, 
being the story too much, but there were a couple moments that were so surreal that I thought people would benefit from hearing. Like there was a moment where he was standing by my television and it was so strange, right? Because I was like, man, I've watched this guy on my television a lot. And I think probably while people were reading this, they might've, I imagine a lot of them probably thought to themselves, what would it be like to have this guy in my living room, yeah. right? When you read the piece, you're like, well, or any athlete. And so I kind of wanted to relay the strangeness and uniqueness of that experience. As he's messing around with, like, what was it? He's like, is this a llama? Or he's just looking at the... Yeah, <laughs> it's a little figurine my brother got me from Peru. Um, that is so strange. Uh, I guess lastly, the as you mentioned before, the opening scene in this is is him on the bus after the Super Bowl. And it's got the nice bookend with the scene of him watching the Super Bowl. And I guess, why did you want to start with that that scene on the bus? You know, How did you know that that was the place to begin this? Well, there was a lot of, you know, at first, I, I mean, I, I think it seemed obvious, oh, okay, I'm going to start with Aaron Rodgers shows up at your door, right? Because that's crazy. Um, but I also, the story is about so much more than that, right? It's not just about the meta-ness and the privacy and the fame and what it's like to be around him. It's also about this personal transformation that he's gone through, that he's still going through this sort of search that the headline alludes to. So I almost, I wanted to start it from a different place to kind of make that clear before we jump into the like, wow, okay, this guy's in my house because the story is about so much more than that. And, and then I also, you know, obviously ended up landing there for the same reason. Mina Kimes, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Justin. For this story and more, you can go to ESPN.com slash double truck. That's all one word. This episode was created by the team at ESPN audio and produced by Michael Ravier. The Double Truck team includes Ryan Graner, Rick Santos, Jenna Janovey, and Eric Neal. Remember, if you like what you're hearing, you can subscribe to the Double Truck Stories podcast on your favorite podcast player. We'll be back soon with more stories. Until then, I'm Justin Ellis. Thanks for listening.